This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Have you got beer? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while. There we go. Oh this is my, my first God. beer since I've seen you last. <laughs> I haven't I haven't drank anything, any liquid betwixt my lips for the last three months. <laughs> Has it been three months? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. End Jesus. of June, July, something like that. What have you been doing for three months? Uh, well, I was finishing off the Masters. Yeah, you were bettering yourself as a human being. I was betting myself. <laughs> betting myself <laughs> to death. How'd <laughs> it go? Do you feel, you think you're smarter than I am now? Uh, no. <laughs> you've, you've always been. That's all the premise of the show. Nah. How did it go? I, <laughs> funnily enough, I feel less qualified to talk about politics than when I started it. <laughs> Hey, it turns out I didn't know everything. No, I was just bullshitting. Oh, man. I knew that, but now I've got it confirmed in grade form. Oh, man. Do you think we'll talk about the stuff you learned about? Yeah, we were were supposed to come back and do an episode on what I did my thesis title on, um, populism. Mm. But it was actually too soon from the war of trying to write that (laughs) 20,000... word fucking thing and I was getting fucking flashbacks and I was like no can't do it so yes we will we will be able to address that we will right at some point yes because populism is a topic that we've wanted to do and now I feel semi-qualified to tell you I don't know what it means but these other people that I read they think they do lovely so once your night terrors uh your academic themed night terrors stopped we can we can go back to it you know the way when you grip the sheets and you scream Harvard referencing I don't you made a video game for your your dissertation. I did, yeah, I did a video it game. It was awesome, with Jer. yeah. Um, but that's like the only way I could do that level of academia is if it's I could like shoot things, and we did, and we did well. Uh, I don't know what I've been doing the last three months. Just been kind of well, I've been podcasting. I just dialed into a different podcast by accident. Oh, really? <laughs> just Joe. Oh, I was in, yeah. on the Joe Rogan show. That was you. you on Joe Rogan. I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I don't listen to Joe Rogan, so that's no. Not, that's not I was accurate. just there. I think they turned off my mic. I was just there. Why are you so mean? <laughs> Stop, Joe. Have you checked this guy's credentials before he says this thing? Joe, J- Joe, Joe. Is this guy really an expert, Joe? Y- you know what I will say though. Chap has no worms, just no worms in him at all. He's got dog worms because he didn't he's, take the dog deworming. No, he took the ho- he's no horse worms. No horse worms. You could cut, you could chop that guy to pieces and sift through him with a fine tooth comb, and you would not find a single horse worm. No, saturated with COVID. Oh my god! <laughs> but no horse worms. So, yeah, I got a spin bike. That's actually one thing I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you, oh yeah, you've been doing the the pen penath. What's the name of the thing? The Peloton. Peloton classes with with uh, Joe Biden. All the Joes. You just been having a Joe old time. <laughs> That's it. No, I've been yeah, I've been doing not Peloton but Apple Fitness with an instructor called Tyrell, who my oh, man yeah. calls Tyrell. <laughs> <laughs> Tyrell. Yeah, uh, I've been doing that. Next time you see me, I'll show you my legs. My legs look great, Steve. Um, you did have like for your for your size. I was worried about you know if your legs could hold you up because you're so tall, and you don't have you know the big meaty rugby legs. I'm like yeah, I'm like a top heavy fraction. You know, <laughs> triangle you know, you man. Twenty two over seven. You're like oh that's a dodgy looking. Fra- that's me. I'm a twenty two over seven of a man. You're up to an eight or eleven now, are you? Yeah, about that. About that. I well, I got it. So I got it from um, Facebook Marketplace secondhand, uh, and it was all the way over in Chelsea. So I got a bike. I got uh, one of those electric line bikes that you can just rent anywhere in London and cycle all the way over there. Got there, met your man. He let me into his house, inspected the bike, the spin bike. I was like, this looks great. So I wheeled it outside uh, to wait for my friend Craig, who had a van. 
he was picking up some furniture for some other thing and he was going to swing by pick me up and drop me home with the spin bike right but for a window there for a little period i was standing on the side of the road waiting for craig to show up with the with, spin bike with the spin bike but also the helmet i had from when i had cycled over on one of those <laughs> rented bikes so people were driving by me and i wasn't aware until there was a dude parked across from me who was looking at me and laughing at me because I was standing on the side of the road with a helmet and a stationary bike that couldn't go anywhere looking kind of forlorn. If only those Londoners knew that you were actually Irish you would have restarted all those stereotypical jokes all over again. <laughs> it's very much a Paddy Irishman moment. Yes. Yeah. But look, jokes on him have got the legs of a god. <laughs> I think what we have to explain do? to people what the show is. I think we need to explain to each other what the show is. <laughs> okay, so we okay, okay. we meet we, we four times weekly to talk about bagels. Four. Oh, not again. You always go to bagels. That's your default. Yeah. Why is, is that? I'm, yeah, you, this is, you've done this in the past. Because all of my, whenever I'm reaching for something, it's always full of holes. Da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> 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 Christ. Yeah, it's that. So it's the it's the political podcast equivalent of whatever Steve just said, right? <laughs> um, and we've been gone for a while. We took a, some time to like just do some soul searching. We found ourselves to be wanting, <laughs> particularly wanting. But we're back now, and we're we- going to talk about. Go on. I was just going to say, if the listeners will hold on to the end, we will have news about the future of the show. Yeah. But, but before then, we will talk about... We'll talk about Northern Ireland. It's someone's uh, birthday this year. I mean, it's... Steve, by definition, it's literally everyone's birthday every year. It's someone's 100th birthday this year. <laughs> Go on. You're getting very sassy after the break. I know! <laughs> I'm not afraid of you anymore. <laughs> I've got my big powerful kicking legs now. I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> He's just squatting. Run. He's doing his um, what's it, intimidation squats right in front of me. It's, it That's is like really putting me off. I can kick you. I can run away from you. I can do anything. It is the 100 year birthday of the partition of the island of Ireland and the creation of the state of Northern Ireland. Ooh, is there a party planned? <laughs> oh, there's quite a few parties. Did you hear the, um, the bit of a kerfuffle with our boy, President Michael D. Higgins? No. No, you didn't? Okay. He's a very, he usually avoids kerfuffles by definition. Oh, and by, he by jumped profession. into it. He rolled up his tiny little hobbit sleeves and he jumped <laughs> into this crap. Oh so my God. Back in March, he was invited to a, like a trans-denominational, multi-denominational Christian ceremony to mark right. 100 years of Northern Ireland. Right. And at the time Protestants, he said, Catholics... Protestants, Catholics, like the Presbyterians, Methodists, Church of Ireland and Catholics, the four main Jedi, Jedi, the, the main and whatever like Tolkienism that uh, Michael D is. <laughs> he was invited to that, but he said at the time, I'm not sure I really want to go because this sounds like something that I shouldn't be involved in as president of Ireland to mark 100 years of the partition of my island. That's a right. little bit controversial, as we'll get into in this episode. But anyway, people forgot about it, and apparently the message didn't get to the right people, so no one knew. Until suddenly, last week, when he was on a trip to Rome, Michael D was asked, are you going to go? Yeah. And he says, no, I'm not going. 
because I, it's the the title is politicized. Yeah. And also they referred to me as the president of the Republic of Ireland. My name is the president of Ireland. So that basically looks like the president of Ireland is dissing that ceremony. Oh. So that caused a whole kerfuffle. The unionists in Northern Ireland were like, this is inappropriate. He clearly doesn't respect us. This doesn't bode well for any talks about unification. Uh. The guys organizing the event. Oh, the queen was supposed to be there as well. So it looks like he's dissing the queen. So Ooh. it became this whole big thing. Well, it's, it's not like he's dropping a diss track about the queen, <laughs> which I would fucking love. I would give one of my left, my, I would give one of my muscular legs to hear. I thought you were going to say one of your left testicles. One of my, <laughs> I've got eight on that side and three on the other. So I guess I could give up one of the, it's like a, it's like a net of oranges, <laughs> an asymmetrical net of oranges. <laughs> What were we talking about? So do you, okay, uh, so do you think it would have been better for President Higgins to just have gone along to this and just, it's become more of a thing now because he hasn't? I think uh, what the president is, he's he's entitled to do whatever he chooses to do. Personally, yeah. it probably wouldn't have been a big deal if he had gone because like, right. we do recognise that the state of Northern Ireland exists. We'll get into that later about the fights between the two states over the years, but uh, but also, if he th- felt he was being dissed and he felt that he was giving too much support to something that he doesn't believe in, I also think he's entitled to not go. Yeah. But it was basically a bureaucratic fuck up that he ended up offending so many people. Is that what, that's sure. what it seems? And yeah. because it's the summer and there isn't really much else to talk about, it has become a whole big story in Ireland over the past two weeks. Right. Okay. So do you want to use this as a segue then into talking about Northern Ireland in general? And like, cause we've hit on a lot of things there. And I think that's a really good, that's a really good setup because it kind of highlights in a modern context, how contentious this whole thing is. Yes. That even the idea of attending a function, basically. A mass. Like a, 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 a mass, service. Yeah, a service. With the Queen has, of England. Yeah. Well, the Queen, the Queen of, of the UK. Yeah. There we go. This is what I mean. It's a yeah. minefield. So even, even the, the simple act of someone not RSVPing or RSVPing that they're not attending uh, this function has caused massive, massive ripples. So it just kind of it's shows like, how contentious the subject is. It's like when your cousin Gregory invited you to his wedding. Yeah. And then uh, three weeks later, the Nolans were shooting each other and laying landmines around Kildare. And we had to take in like the Irish FBI to, to break you all up. I mean, though, which time? It's a big family. This happens like every every three years. <laughs> you got to get that bad blood out of the system. <laughs> But it is, it's a contentious thing. And I think you're, you're pretty poised to talk about it because you, like, you grew up, like, this was on your doorstep, right? You grew up in, maybe let's start here, probably one of the most confusing things. You grew up in the north of Ireland, but not northern Ireland. I grew up in the most northerly county of Ireland. Yes. Because Malinhead is the top of the island. But the county, Correct. Donegal, where I was raised, is not in northern Ireland. It's in mm-hmm. the rest of Ireland. Sure, Which is a contentious thing. Do we call it the Republic of Ireland? Do we just call it Ireland? <laughs> Do we call it South Ireland? It's the free state is what some of them call it <laughs> yeah. as well to really annoy us, even though it hasn't been that since the 50s. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, so I grew up, I, I, I was in Dublin first and my mother um, would take us up every couple of weeks to visit her family mm. um, before we actually moved up there properly. So that was during the 90s and the early 2000s. And we would be stopped by British soldiers at the border. They would x-ray scan the car for checking for bombs I guess they would ask questions where are you coming from where are you going to go on mm. like it was just a normal part of the process you would stop and look at soldiers British soldiers holding guns you didn't think it was weird or anything that was just I definitely thought you. it was weird yeah <laughs> it didn't feel normal no it was yeah. weird yeah 
And even the last time it happened, uh, my dad was driving me from Donegal down to Kildare, I think Punchestown, to go see Eminem. Represent. Uh, <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. I know the story. This is the best story. Eminem. So he was driving and he had a really shitty old um, station wagon or estate, depending on which part of the world you're from. And yeah. It was like really shitty. <laughs> it was a really crappy car. But um, yeah. uh, this young soldier, geez, he must have been only like 18, walking on the road with a rifle. So this was in 2004. It was after, or 2003, it was after the border posts had been deconstructed, but soldiers were still in Northern Ireland on semi-regular patrol. It was like the very end of yeah. of, a, of a military presence. Um, he just put up his hand. So my dad stopped. Guy with a gun <laughs> tells you to stop. You stop. As, as you do. As you do. <laughs> we're all down the window. He's like, all right, where are you going? Uh, English English sold kid soldier he says to my dad my dad really yeah. awkward talking to <laughs> someone in authority with a gun which is not yep. normal in Ireland our, our nope. police do not have guns uh, he's like oh uh, I'm taking my son down to the M&M concert silence oh I'm gonna try the drugs before he does ha 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 <laughs> soldier just looks at him alright go on <laughs> meanwhile you're, I imagine Steve in the back with like that slim shady era baggy white t-shirt baggy oh, yeah. jeans sh- shaved head shaved bleached, bleached peroxide, head. yeah. and then the, the, it turns to you it's like what do you what do you think I think I've made this joke to you before and you just burst out the DUP won't let me be you let me be me so let me see <laughs> <laughs> and this 18 year old kid from somewhere in England has no fucking idea what I'm talking about <laughs> he wouldn't know what the DUP is so yeah oh, that was so that was yeah that's the north um, yeah it's a weird thing and it, like it's it's a weird situation so most people in let's just say the south most people in the south don't really think about it if you're not no, if you don't I, live I, on the border it doesn't come into your mind that much I'm off for my context to juxtapose with yours like I grew up in quote, quote, the south <laughs> no but I grew, I grew up like in the midlands and there was no like obviously you're aware of it um in terms of like your your parents talk about it or you hear it on the news or whatever but like it's not it's it's something that could have been happening in a different country it had no impact on my day-to-day life it was a news story it was something you chatted about in school but it had no knock-on implications there was no and none of that military presence, obviously, that you're talking about. So it, it felt completely and utterly separate. And that's probably a privilege of mine. I don't really think about that much. That that context was never part of my childhood experience. Um, I think it goes the same for most people in Ireland, except if you did grow up around the border, in which case it forms a big part of, you know, your 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 memories, I think, of growing up there. Except for, I will caveat by saying there is a weird subculture in Ireland where you get really into republicanism. Like if you're a teenager or a young fella yeah. from somewhere, usually a man, um, yeah. and you start talking about hunger strikers and yeah. how evil the British are and how they need to leave your island despite the fact you've never been to fucking Northern Ireland. <laughs> that is a good point. You don't Everyone. know that many people from. I've I've come across quite a few people like that. Um, yeah. Even and, even the the like I said, growing up in, the, in Irish rurality in the Midlands, people no no one had any direct experience with stuff. But yeah, there was a lot of thinly veiled nationalism, like very like thinly veiled, very strong nationalism. It's it's like a I guess it's like a general aura when you grow up. In yeah, the South. it's just it's there. There's like this yeah. default Brits out. <laughs> it's like, but, but that's it. It's but like there's like the, the it's the first words we say. We talked about in our UK episode. There's like different layers to it, and it's it's so like at what point does it become? does it become more toxic and maybe yeah. it always is or maybe it's not but like there is like this yeah sun's out Brits out like ah the Brits are at it again There's a, and I guess that's to be expected from anyone who's kind of come off a post-colonial 
way of being. You know, it's like part of your identity. And it's, of course, something that you're going to push back against. Yeah. And you're going to do it in your humor. Um, but yeah, then there's like a deeper, more uh, insidious layer where, yeah, people take it a little step further and are very, you know, sympathetic to the Ra, as we'll discuss later, and, and actions like that. And yeah, we'll get into all that later. But it's, yeah, it is a weird, an aura is exactly it. And people just experience it to different strengths. So, okay, do you want to do like a quick hiss? Like, I'll say quick. This is yeah. going to be, again, contentious. But for coming in... For people, maybe, I don't know, some of our American listeners who aren't as familiar, they're aware that there was something called the Troubles. Bill Clinton was there. Did he do a sax solo that fixed everything? I don't know. Can we do like a general quick timeline as to what led to this, you know, the quote unquote, the Troubles? Sure. And I guess it's not even fair to to focus too much on the Troubles, but inevitably that's where we're going to go because that yeah, is... Yeah, that's like the end yeah. destination. That's the yeah. meat of the subject, I think. But so what happened before then? I guess we kind of have to like, I mean, we've talked about it loads of times whenever we talk about the history of Ireland or the United Kingdom, inevitably we'll talk about what the Brits done did to Ireland. So Ireland has been, it was conquered many times by the English, by, by the Britons, um, mostly down around Dublin for a long, long time. In fact, that's where mm. the expression, the pale comes from, because that was right. so solidly an English Norman area that outside of that was considered to be a different land and you're from inside it you're essentially english it was like right. that for hundreds of years we're talking like, like a west through. west west english yes like a west brit, west yeah. brit. well that's a different thing that came yeah, later. yeah but yeah and then it, even that's where the expression that's used in the idiom in the english language outside the pale it, mm. it like it refers to outside that's not civilization anymore that's where them fucking mad irish gales live and they're going <laughs> to they're going to kick the fuck out of you for no reason just because they can yeah. probably true at the time <laughs> but <laughs> There was also these things, there was the, all the, um, kind of as English imperialism started to ramp up around probably the 1500s, 1600s, they did these waves of plantations in Ireland. They would come in, they would conquer, they would try to settle and completely take over, usually involving some kind of a war and some kind of a fight. And there were four of those. But the only one that really properly took hold was the Ulster Plantation. And that was, I think, like I don't have my history 100%, but I think that was quite strongly pushed by your man Cromwell back mm. in the 16-whatevers. Mm -hmm. And that actually worked. That that really did end up like putting a foothold into the area in the same way that European settlers did in the United States. Because as part of that, as opposed to the other ones where they would just get rid of the Irish aristocracy and put an English aristocrat in the place, what mm. they did in the Ulster plantation was they took over a fuck ton of poor people with them to, to start to settle. Ah, build homes. So they seeded it. They, they, yeah, exactly. Yes, they properly yeah. seeded it. They actually managed to take root, and that is. Sorry, we should say also Ulster for those. That's like the north of that's Ireland. That's the north. That, that is, that, is that nine province. counties. Um, yeah, there are three of them at the moment in the south. There are six of them in the north. But that is, they managed to to get properly there. And then by the time you're coming up to, like the end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century, around World War One time, the north is different. There are a lot more Protestants there. There are a lot more people who consider themselves British as well as Irish, but mostly British. Right. And then there are in the rest of the country. So that's why the North is different. Okay. Clearly we're starting to see like a, a, an identity, a difference yeah. in identity in the country, a different, a split. So when did the idea of like formally partitioning the island come Yeah. In? I probably wasn't too clear. I should have said specifically that by the time we're talking now, the, like the 18, the end of the 19th century, the 1800s, the start of the 1900s. Um, this island is part of the United Kingdom. It has been 100% mm -hmm. involved. If you are a member of parliament in Ireland, you go over to Westminster to represent your constituents. It's part of, 
It'd yeah. be just as it's just as much part of the UK as Manchester or London. Right. So, but the Irish were never happy about that. They were always trying to get more um, freedom. They were trying to get more independence. Mm-hmm. And the idea of splitting the island in two started to come in when it became obvious to the people in the north, um, the unionists, the loyalists, if you want to call them that. We'll get into mm-hmm. the difference between those later. Um, mm-hmm. They started to realize that they couldn't hold the whole island as part of the United Kingdom. Um, history just wasn't on their side. So there was a couple of things. Um, as part of general British politics, it had gotten to the point that the Brits were like, OK, we will give some level of independence to Ireland. They've asked for it enough, but they wanted to do it like legally, democratically through what was called sure. home rule. Okay. The people in the North were like, if we let that happen, what's going to happen is the, the, the majority of Catholics are just going to take over and they were going to get rid of our way of life. They were going to change how we live our lives normally. We will not, it will not be our country anymore. It'll be their country. And they used okay, to say- Okay, so they didn't see, they didn't see the, the idea of a clear split happening that like- it, by giving up some ground, they're going to give up all ground. Yeah. So their okay. their expression was home rule equals Rome rule. Ah, And okay. as the home rule bill was coming in and it looked like the whole of Ireland was going to be separated into a separate independent state, um, people in the north actually organised, they had, um, they had, they had a big convention where they got hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people to step up and sign a pledge that not by my blood will this happen. And they formed what was called the Ulster Volunteer Force and they started arming themselves. So there was a couple of hundred thousand Ulstermen with guns saying, never in our lifetimes will will Ireland leave the United Kingdom. We this will wow. this will be our stand. This will not happen. And then in reaction to that, people down in mm-hmm. the south of Ireland around Dublin and all the rest of Ireland started doing the same. And they started to mobilize, taking guns and set up the Irish Volunteer Force. So mm-hmm. just before World War One, we had Two massive hundreds of thousands of very angry Irish people looking at each other with guns saying this will happen, this won't happen. And it looked like it was about to be civil war. But World War One came along and that actually took the edge <laughs> off it. <laughs> as far as distractions go, it's a pretty big it's one. Pretty big one. So what happened was all the Ulster volunteer soldiers, um, volunteer guys, they joined to fight for Britain. Um, right. And they were like, OK, well, if we prove our worth, the Brits will not leave us out to dry. They won't. They won't dump us. But right. then the Irish volunteers, their leaders actually told them the same thing. They said, yeah. if you go and fight for, for the British army, they will be nice to us and they will give us what we want in home rule, the whole island. So you had all these people going over to agree to fight. So basically the fight was looking like it was going to happen here. And then the World War I happened, distraction. And then we just kind of like, everyone just moved over there. <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> basically postponing the problem. Nearly everyone, because a couple of thousand Irish guys stay behind. And they refused to go and fight for the Brits. And they set up what was this secret organization called the Irish Republican Brotherhood. They thought that this home rule thing was a load of bullshit, but we don't need to, we don't need the Brits to give us anything. We should take it. So they organized right. a rebellion in Dublin on Easter 1916 that involved taking over the GPO, taking over a bunch yeah. of other places. And it led to massive um, conflict. The Brits had to take the army in to get them out. All the mm. leaders were executed. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden... Irish opinion, which was like kind of, oh, sure, we'll just have home rule. It'll be fine. Sure, we're kind of British anyway. There's no big deal. Suddenly swung to, no, we are Irish. We are, and the only way to be properly Irish is to get independence and to be a republic. Right. To be a separate, a fully separate yeah. state. So it was the idea of like home rule before that, it would have been more of a commonwealthy type thing. It's kind of like what Scotland have at the moment. Sure. And Wales. Yeah, yeah. Like devolution. That's what it was going to be. What happened then? So World War One finishes, this problem hasn't gone away. No. Both sides, 
through their own political machinations thought by getting involved in World War One would help their cause but both sides did it but then you've also got like the 1916 the Easter Rising as we talked about what what happens in between then what that led you know we we know from history we got our independence in 1922 what happened in between like how did that all shake out so you had two different narratives going on at the same time um we'll focus first on the irish one then we'll go to the northern irish one so the irish one they effectively started a guerrilla campaign a war against the brits and they fought the war of independence i think you can go back to our um ireland episode to get more details on that or you can watch michael collins for a very flimsy hollywood version but does the trick exactly (laughs) or also we should also said we had a really good chat with lena norms on her podcast um that you can go check out as well Uh, go on sorry long story short we fought against Brits, black and tans, guns, bombs, death, destruction, all that crack. We ended mm-hmm. up agreeing um, to a treaty that involved effectively mostly independence with a few little snags. Sure. While that was going on, there were these two fellas in the north. There was this guy called Carson. He was a Dublin-born but Protestant unionist barrister. A very, very charismatic man. There's great statues of him like holding up his arms and like there's loads of um, photos of him at mass meetings just enthralling hundreds of thousands of people with his with his voice and his image and his words. Mm. He was able to rally all these guys. He was the guy that led that um, Pledge for Ulster thing that set up the UVS. Yes. Yeah. And he didn't want to see any home rule brought into Ireland whatsoever. So he actually started to realise that because of everything that was going on in the South, the Brits were going to give some kind of a concession. So he gave it up to his second in command, this guy called Craig. Craig realised that he wasn't going to get to keep the entire Ireland, so he would consolidate in the North. Because through that, they would have enough Unionist Protestant people to stay within the United Kingdom and keep it in a state that they would consider proper, that wouldn't be taken over too much by Roman rule, wouldn't be too Catholic, would be able to, you know, live the lives as they as they think that they should be lived. Sure. And he and negotiated. Again, this all comes back. This all comes back because of that earlier plantation where exactly there's where, enough people. Where the, in fact, people took hold. He was going over and having negotiations with the Brits the whole time as well. In fact, he was in, he was a member of Parliament, so as part of his his duties, he was in Westminster having these talks. Um, they actually said, "Okay, so do you want Ulster? Do you want the nine counties?" And he looked mm. at it and he goes, "Hmm, that only gives Protestants a sixty percent or like maybe a fifty five percent majority." That's not enough. So forget Donegal, forget Monaghan, forget Cavan, which had much more um, Catholic, major- much more sure. Catholic people. Let's keep these six where we have a 67% majority. So with that, right. that so is just a, concentrated. Exactly. A real concentrated out. Protestant majority that he would be able to create his own small Protestant state. And he so got then it. When, when the issue, yeah, when the issue of independence was finally formalized in 1922, that was... That, that's what we went with. That's the... Well, actually, before that, because I said this is the 100-year anniversary, in 1921, the the Northern Irish state was set up. Before, before, before independence. Yeah, before, actually, oh, before okay. Irish independence, yeah. So right. it was up and running for about a year before the... That would have been a weird year. <laughs> well, yeah. Right? <laughs> well, the guys in the South were too busy trying to fight their own war. There was there was trouble in the North, and th- the sectarian violence that would come up in the Troubles started to happen. In fact, they called the era of, of 1920, 1921, and 1922 in the North the Troubles of the 20s. <laughs> there was lots of... Se- pretty um, the, the prequel. Pretty much. There were people burned yeah. out of their homes. There were refu- Catholic Jesus. refugees having to leave to go down South. Um, there was this awful, horrific case of a family, um, this this very wealthy Catholic um, publican in the North 
was just shot dead with his four sons in their house, probably yeah. by an inspector of the um, police forces there. And they're not even sure why. They thought that maybe, yeah. oh, he was giving money to the IRA for them to do their activities up here. But that wasn't true at all. So they think they might, he might have just shot him because they didn't like seeing a Catholic, a wealthy yeah. Catholic businessman. Um, and there were thousands of ship workers who used to work for the Harland and Wolf shipyards that made the Titanic and those things. That was a huge industry up in Belfast. They were run out of their jobs one day in July in 1921 by fellows with bricks and bats and rocks. Just like beaten and forced out just of just for being yeah for being different just for being Catholic and they didn't want to be yeah. part of that. That was the state yeah. that Craig was happy to set up. That he thought the only way to protect his way of life was to mm. create this this Protestant state that they could enforce th- these kind of things. Yeah. So that, like we said, majority Protestant, but that didn't mean there wasn't Catholics there. Like no, it's like thirty odd percent. Th- yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, before we get into like what came next. We've already mentioned things like nationalist, loyalist, unionist. It, it could be a bit confusing and a little bit, like you said, contentious, but is it worth just defining what is a nationalist? Sure. What is a loyalist? What is a unionist? unionist? Because it, like, even just say, take the term unionist. There's also a you Republican. Go, you miss a Republican. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, are you the un- for like a unified Ireland? Because that's something I keep hearing. Is that what unionist is? Or is it like the union of like the United Kingdom? And so could we... Could you just maybe just do a quick sure. glossary? There are four terms that were being used back in these times as well. So you have the two that are used to apply for people that consider themselves Protestants, pro-United Kingdom. They are called mm. unionists. So union in this sense means that you are part, you believe in the union of the United Kingdom. You yeah. don't want to see that degraded. You don't want to see that diminished. That is yeah. what you want as your main political operandi. A more extreme version of that is called loyalist. And this is actually a funny one because... This means that you are so loyal to the British crown that you will, in fact, go against the British crown's government because you think that they are not loyal enough. So that means that you will go and be a terrorist, yeah, <laughs> a loyalist yeah. terrorist who will carry out illegal activities against their government yes. because almost more loyal. loyal to a loyal to a fault. Loyal to a, a very fault. serious. <laughs> it's very serious fault. And it, I think unionist is a more appropriate term. I think there's more connotations yeah. of using loyalist, right, or negative connotations. Yeah, but that—that's not to say that there are perfectly legitimate people operating in pol- in politics in Northern Ireland who would be relatively happy with being called a loyalist as well. But still, mm-hmm. and so then what else we have? Nas- we have nationalists in there. To flip it around, you have nationalists and republicans, which mm-hmm. are effectively the shadow versions of those other ones. A nationalist means that you are you identify more with the Irish nation than you do with the mm-hmm. British one. You want mm-hmm. um, you effectively you do want to see a reunification of the island of Ireland and a government in Dublin, not a government in London. Um, It probably means that you're Catholic. It probably means Mm -hmm. that you're, yeah, you come from that Gaelic Irish tradition. Back to the the one that we were talking about that got independence in the south of Ireland. And then Republican means that Mm -hmm. you are, it comes from the days when, when we got independence in Ireland, we didn't get a republic. We got like the the free state, as it was called. The people that that went against that, that wanted to continue fighting, were called Republicans because they wanted a full 32-county republic. So Republicans are effectively the people that are so pro-republic that they will shoot Gardaí (laughs) in the south of Ireland because they believe in that republic so much more than the people that work for it. (laughs) Again, that Republican to a fault. A large, awful fault. But then again, (laughs) it's the term Republican is used by people who are not violent, who are legitimate political actors. Yes. But again, it is probably still safer to say nationalist. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, but that's that's good to kind of give ourselves a little glossary as we as we start chatting about the politics of what came after. So we, where we left off, um, it was 1922. We had we the, we have like the official formal partition, um, Irish independence in the south. So before the troubles started, quote unquote, started decades later, was this like a happy period where like everything was settled and calm? Um, not really, <laughs> but kind of. Right. Right. So, as I said, Craig was able to create this this Protestant northern state and then built into that was a guarantee that Protestant people would essentially be first level citizens, first tier citizens, and Catholic people would be second tier citizens. And actually, to make that worse, nationalists in Northern Ireland, they were kind of leaderless, like most of the leaders that most of the leaders in, in the south of Ireland that people historians think would have been more inclined to support them ended up getting shot and killed in the civil war people like michael collins and sure. the leaders that were left in the south wanted to try and concentrate on making sure that they could get their own state up and running so yeah. they kind of ignored the north right people the the leaders in the south but then equally nationalists and um, politicians and political actors in the north didn't want to engage in a state that they thought was effectively um like a form of apartheid like it was designed against them to 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 keep yeah. them to keep them locked down so they kind of ignored it as well so that just left the mm-hmm. protestants to to dominate it to run it entirely as they saw fit which involved things like um, discrimination in terms of funding for catholic areas it led to like there was hardly any people that would be catholic working in for the state jobs like any yeah. kind of good jobs good things they all went to the people that were protestant and that was that was that was going on through the the 30s the 40s the 50s all the way sure. up to the troubles with that is it true that um like you as part of that systemic problem that you couldn't vote if you didn't own like a business or a property. No, I don't. That was no, I don't think that was true. That was like uh, they were still part of the United Kingdom, where you had um, full emancipation for voting men and women. Anyone could vote, sure. but the right. districts were gerrymandered so that if you were a right. nationalist voter, number one, you didn't really have anybody good to vote for because all, everyone that was worth their salt were boycotting the system, and then number two, you your your little pocket was was put into a Protestant majority so that your vote wouldn't count anyway. So even if you like amassed every vote in that district, it, it, would, it wouldn't amount to anything because of the gerrymandering. Generally speaking, no. But there were still right. examples of local um, councillors that would get um, nationalist politicians elected to them or there was like a handful of nationalist politicians sent into the, the assembly and stuff, but never enough to make any any dent in the in the, in the Protestant majority system. So you were left with a bunch of Catholics who are underrepresent, underrepresented, probably limited economic opportunities and prospects, probably limited educational opportunities and prospects as a result. Like all these things just cascade, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, there were, like, because Northern Ireland was part of the UK, there were some like social social welfare services that the Catholics did get access to just because there was enough money to go around. So it's sure. like... Some of them did manage to get good educations. People like um, someone like uh, Mary, Har- uh, what was her name? <laughs> Whoops, Mary, not Robinson, our second Mary, second president, President Mary. Oh, McAleese. Mary McAleese. I was thinking of Mary Harney. She was another Irish politician. Yeah. Mary McAleese was an educated Northern 
Catholic who who managed to get it. Her husband was a was an educated Catholic, so there were some examples of them coming through, but they certainly sure. weren't in the norm. And it was a lot harder if you were a Catholic than if you were a Protestant. Like I don't want yeah. to paint it as being as bad as exa- of, of, of examples of oppression in other places, but sure, it was still yeah, a form of oppression, and it was still yeah. a bad system. It's still a two tier system. Exactly. It was yeah. still yeah yeah. It was still it was still unfair at its core, and you, th- something like that can only exist for so long before people again start to push back. Well, so that's what started to happen at the end of the sixties. So. Mm-hmm. All through the 40s, 50s and 60s, there was this, there was an underlying, there were still little clashes between what was called the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, which is effectively Mm -hmm. a descendant of the organization that fought Ireland's independence campaign in the 20s. It managed to survive. Sorry? The Irish Republican Brotherhood. No, IRA, Irish Republican Army. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I thought I said this is a descendant of, it's not the descendant of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. It's both. Okay. Yeah, it is. So the Irish okay, Republican okay. Brotherhood effectively spawned the Irish Republican Army, which fought right. independence, got independence for the South. And then some of them refused to stop the fight and continued to fight in different pockets. So there were little, like little border clashes along the, the Northern Irish, Southern Irish border. And um, mm-hmm. there were so, small, like small examples of like acts of terrorism scattered around. But like we're talking hardly anything. And effectively it was inactive as an organization in the sixties. But on the back of civil rights marches in places like America, um, like Martin Luther King, those kind of things, March mm-hmm. on Selma, the news started to filter to Ireland that there was a way to organize and mobilize against these injustices and try to stand up for yourself and stand up for your rights. So these yeah. civil rights um, groups started to mobilize in different parts of, of Northern Ireland. Mm. The Northern Irish state did not like this. They mobilized this atrocious organization that was effectively a paramilitary version of the police force called the B-Specials. Basically thugs with sticks who would turn up at these, at these events, these marches and beat the fuck out of people. Jesus Christ. B-Specials, what's the... That's what they're called. The the B-Specials, that was the name of the branch. So you weren't a regular cop, you were a B-Special. Right, Okay. And their job was just to try and quelch yeah. this rising yeah. unrest. Yeah. So then, as like, not just these civil rights protesters weren't just getting the the, the, the the shit kicked out of them when they tried to organize in town squares and, and fields for marches and things. They, they tried to emulate the kind of marches across the country that were going on in the United States. And whenever they tried sure. to do something that they would turn a corner, there would be these fucking bastards with sticks that would like beat up old people, beat up students, beat up people that were just peacefully trying to protest against a system that was unjust. Yeah. Um, but also as part of that, the sectarian violence that we were talking about that happened around the 20s started to really spark up again, where you had people being burned out of their homes. So like people do tend in the North tended to, to like gather around neighborhoods, but up until the sixties, it wasn't, it wasn't as segregated as it has become now where you had like that town is this, that town is that, that estate is this, that estate is that you would have like the end of the street would have more Catholics or this part would have a bit of Protestants, but would mostly be Catholic. What started to happen right. then is that the small Catholic pockets of these, of these mostly Protestant areas, they started to actually be targeted um, in terms of like firebombing their houses, intimidation, being forced out of their areas. This started Jesus, to spark okay. up on a massive scale. So in reaction to that, the British government said, well, this is fucking bullshit and sent in the army to try mm. and separate the two communities and try and protect the Catholic minority against Protestant intimidation. So at the start, when the British soldiers came in in the late 60s, they were effectively peacekeepers. They were actually welcomed by Catholic communities as protectors. Right, right, right. But that didn't last all that long. <laughs> 
No. So we started to see the, like more, more and more segregation. So like more like a cat. This is a Catholic neighborhood. This is like where some Catholic businesses are. Yeah. These are Catholic areas. But not just that. We also have their status like we have to keep them separate or else they'll start right, to hurt exactly. each other. Okay, so how, how long did this last last for then, this well, kind of period of separation? This, well, this period of separation continues up until today. But yeah. um, in terms of becoming what, what we know as the actual troubles, there was one spark that, that started the fire and that was Bloody Sunday. So mm. there was a massive um, march for the rights in Derry City in 1968. Actually, I want, sorry, let me get that date right. Don't yeah, want to get that one right. wrong. No, that's an important one. <laughs> Hold on, let me download YouTube Sunday, bloody Sunday. Oh, <laughs> and play through. <laughs> um, before I talk about something awful, have you heard that famous uh, Alan Partridge joke about Sunday, a uh, bloody Sunday? <laughs> Apparently, in the, I'd never seen it, but in the, in the, I think I've seen the clip in the show he has on an Irish journalist and he's like, oh, you're Irish, you like you too then. Oh, I love that song, Sunday, bloody Sunday. It just captures Sunday so well. You're like, oh... <laughs> I've got to read the paper. Oh, the kids are annoying me. Oh, I got to go make a roast. Oh, Sunday, bloody Sunday. <laughs> uh, lo and behold, that is not what the famous U2 song about. The famous U2 is about a massacre that happened in Derry on the 30th of January in 1972 in a part of Derry called the Bogside. Mm-hmm. Derry was a Catholic majority, but Protestant run city as everywhere else was in Northern Ireland. Um, and... It was also caught up in the civil rights marches. So there's this really big march that was organized by actually a Protestant man um, whose name I didn't write down, but he's worth checking out. He's a very interesting character. He was leading a march of hundreds of people through the bog side to um, march into Derry City Centre to demonstrate and ask for some rights. They were shot en masse by the British Army. Um, 14 people died including children, including teenagers, um, priests, all sorts of people, um, when yeah. British paratroopers started shooting into the crowd. Um, it has continued to be a really contentious thing as to why that happened the way it did. Um, there's constant mm-hmm. inquiries. There's there's questions. Like, obviously, the people who, who want to see justice want to see British soldiers held accountable in terms of prosecutions. But the British yeah. state has never been too inclined to let that happen. So while there's been loads of... Um, investigations and I think David Cameron when he was in charge actually apologised on behalf of the British state I remember that he has a formal apology but still in terms of actual justice and a very clear understanding of what happened that day it wasn't Um, they claim that there were IRA people in the crowds shooting um, but there's never been evidence of that but what did happen after this is that hundreds of thousands of people in the north maybe not hundreds of thousands that's, that's inappropriate but to say a lot of people in the north didn't think there was any point in having peaceful protests anymore. They pushed, they were right. pushed into support for the, um, the Irish Republican army, the IRA. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. we had the proper terrorist campaign that led to constant bombings, constant shootings, constant trouble that went on through the seventies, eighties, nineties. Yeah. Like it's obviously clearly violence is an awful thing, but you can kind of see the logic in, we tried the peaceful thing got met with violence so what option are you left with but violence as i think of violence begets violence begets violence um so this is like where, really where the trouble started to flare yeah. up and become a constant um source of fear and strife yeah. and death so in, in northern ireland through the 70s there were pockets of northern ireland that were effectively battle zones um mm. most of um inner city belfast Derry. 
um, other towns then scattered around the north where there were constant clashes between the IRA guerrilla forces and the, the British army. And then feeding into that as well, there were unionists and loyalist paramilitary groups starting to spark up who started the targets, trying to counter target the IRA, but then also targeting just generally gen- general people in the Catholic population. And it just descended into the to the to the violence and awfulness that was the troubles that I don't think we should cover in too much detail because there really is too much that we won't do enough justice. But let's just say it was shit. Yeah. <laughs> it involved lots of bombs, bombs in Dublin, bombs in bombs in the U- bombs in England. Lots of death, lots of destruction, lots of awfulness. So, do we want to move on to more like the 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 resolution, like what what brought about the end of such a horrible, horrific stain in in, in our his, shared history, like what? What led to it? What was the tipping point? So as the violence was going on, there were constant attempts by the um, by the British and the Irish governments to try and stop it. So there would be attempts at peace accords. There would be attempts at um, sit downs. But part of the problem was is that the people who represented the IRA were they the the British and Irish state didn't want to give them too much credit because they want they considered them terrorists and illegal criminals. They wanted to negotiate with people that were considered more peaceful politicians. But unfortunately, they didn't have the support of the IRA. So they couldn't actually get a proper deal. And then counter to that as well, the Protestant side, they thought that if they give, if they gave any inch to what they saw as illegal terrorist activities, they would be doing themselves a great injustice. So they didn't want to give anything either. So you had constant attempts and fumbles at agreements all through the 70s and 80s. But while this was going on in the 80s, especially, the IRA and Sinn Féin was taken over by a man called Jerry Adams. You've mentioned him before. You've mentioned him before. Jerry Adams, he's yeah. still an active part of Irish politics. Um, never yeah. admits to having been a member of the Irish Republican Army, but yeah. was the head of the oh, Irish Republican Army. Come on. <laughs> yeah. he, I think it, it can be, it can be inaccur- accurately credited that he saw that they weren't going to force out the British state of North. They weren't going to unite the North and South of Ireland through the violent campaign that they were that they were enacting he saw yeah. that you had to have a dual approach of violence yeah. and votes politics yeah, yeah. they called it the uh, Amorlite and the ballot box Amorlite is a type of uh, machine gun that they had oh, so that wow. was the Amorlite <laughs> that's evocative yeah <laughs> Jesus um, he, he started he started to push Sinn Féin which was the, the the political wing of the IRA towards that and it got to the point that he had enough control and support that he could sit down with the British and Irish authorities and were able to hammer out a deal with the Northern authorities. And they were able to do right. it in the 90s under the governments of Tony Blair in the UK and Bertie Ahern mm-hmm. in Ireland, along with mm-hmm. um, David Hume was the leader of the nationalist um, wing of the Irish of the Irish political side. So he was like mm-hmm. the non-violent Irish nationalist side, he was able yeah. to take Jerry Adams into the uh, into the table to negotiate on behalf of the violent side, and then right. the Protestants were led by a guy called uh, Trimble, and he was able mm-hmm. to take his side to the point that they would agree to what's called the power sharing system. Which right, what's that? That is effectively what we still have in Northern Ireland. It is an executive government which is still part of the United Kingdom, but is has a lot of free reign as to what you can do in in Northern Ireland in terms of health policies, in terms of like just generally managing most things in Northern Ireland. 
So this is to counter some of those injustices that that had kind of led to the well, yeah, the tensions and the, the inequalities. To build into that, the executive of this government has to be a power sharing arrangement between the two sides. So you have to have built into the Northern Irish system now is a coalition. Mm. There cannot right. be a thing. They can't be a hundred percent nationalist. It can't be a hundred percent Protestants running the country. It has to be one yeah. of each. Whichever is the largest party gets to be what's called the first minister. And then whichever mm-hmm. is the largest member of the second of the, of which, whoever is the largest member of this, of the other side gets to be the second minister. And between right. them. And they have shared power. Shared power. They, they run the country together. They split up the, um, the ministerial positions. They, they run the place. Nice. Okay. Um, just, sorry, quick side note. What did uh, fuck, uh, Bill Clinton have? Uh, what was his role in this? Because uh, I always like it was it just like to give it more kind of like global like geopolitical presses more attention yes. on it because I you'll always hear his name come up around that time but he put he, uh, in terms of like actual tangible contributions and, uh, well he, because the Americans weren't part of tangible parts of this you can't really credit a specific thing to them but what Bill Clinton did was he turned the full force of the United States government behind the peace process so it's mm. it's like. It's like if you can imagine American power as having this big fucking spotlight and he decided to point it from somewhere else in the world and put it onto Northern Ireland, which meant that the British had to listen to them, which meant that the Southern Irish government had their eyes on them and which meant that the people in the North felt that like, oh shit, the superpower of the world is taking its time to look at us. So let's not fuck this up. Yeah, yeah, you do behave differently when when all eyes are on you versus when it's just like a thing happening in a dark room. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know or I mean? like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the equivalent of like, like think of somewhere in the world that doesn't get that attention that we don't hear that much about. Like, yeah, you know, the, all the different conflicts going on in Central America, all the different conflicts in countries in Africa, similar conflicts yeah. of two two different sides that are fighting over control in a civil war. America doesn't yeah. concentrate on them, so the world doesn't know about it. Yeah, bit, doesn't have the same exposure. Interesting. That was really fascinating. Um, so, okay. So, the, the, and this was a peace process, like the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday this Agreement was the deal here. that they struck, the hammer it out, to, to agree to take yeah. the violence, the gun out of Northern Irish politics. And eventually yeah. through that, the IRA has effectively been disband, disbanded and disarmed. And yes. all, like there are still splinter groups that have um, violent capabilities, but like we're talking mm. very tiny gangs of yeah. not, nothing like what it Th- was before. Thugs. Thugs, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. there are people that said yeah. that there were thugs before, but now there are less thugs. <laughs> Le- yeah, and less and less thugs. The, the energy and the movement that went into the IRA at that time has been put into Sinn Féin. Right. The political wing. The political wing, yeah. Yeah. And so, flash forward to like now, modern times, how is the peace process going now? Like, has it? how has it persevered? Has it stood the test of time? Has it stood the test of modern challenges? Um, how, how have we done with like reconciling with the past? If you were to give it a grade, like on the American school system, you'd probably give it a C minus. <laughs> right. Okay. So it isn't. It passes. A, it passes. We right. did. It hasn't resorted to violence again, which right. is huge and needs to be massive. Yeah. Always needs to be recognized and always needs to be appreciated. But it's been a lo- mm. there's been tons of fuck ups and there's right. been loads of times where it hasn't worked at all. Okay. Um, so one of the biggest things that's happened is that the two organizations, the, the two largest political parties at the time of the peace process were a party called the SDLP, who were the Nationalist Catholic Party, and the Ulster Unionist Party, who were the Protestant Unionist Party. Yeah. They were the two biggest parties at the time. They went into the first power sharing agreement. They pretty quickly were pushed aside 
both of them by their by their more extreme counterparts. Sinn Féin on the Irish nationalist side mm-hmm. and the DUP, the Democratic Ulster, the Democratic Unionist Party on the northern side, yeah. um, led by Ian Paisley, a very famous um, Protestant, basically like all through the 70s, 80s and 90s, he was, he was the one saying, no, never give an inch. If we give an inch, they will take a mile. Yeah. He took over. Um, so, but this, these these disagreements and 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 disputes and conflicts were happening through elections, which is good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, they're still it makes for pretty shitty politics, right? They did event so there was a while when Sinn Fein and the DUP wouldn't go into power together, but they were the two biggest parties, so the kind of system was undermined a bit like that. Well, if we don't have the biggest parties running the place, what's the point? And there was there was other bits of kerfuffle in terms of Sinn Fein being um, raided by the by the British police services and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, Kate. Um, okay, we're talking about the troubles for God's sake. <laughs> this is serious. She's getting the exercise map to work out some of her own frustrations about about this. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but they did manage to actually do a deal where you had the leader of Sinn Fein in the north. Actually, that's not true. But the second in command of Sinn Fein, Martin mm-hmm. McGuinness, mm-hmm. who admits to having admitted to having been in the IRA, who killing people, ordering death, yeah. going into government with. Ian Paisley, like the last Protestants holdout to the peace yeah. process. They went into government. Ian Paisley became big. the first minister. Martin McGuinness became deputy first minister. It was huge, massive. massive. That was around 2004, maybe. Mm. And so, like, let's talk about the lay of the land right now. So, like, all of the, we now, like, if we view all of this as the context, like, what are the echoes of that in in like politics in Northern Ireland right now, like how's the economy doing? How is the government doing? Like we've talked about in the past about, about Northern Ireland not having an executive government. Yes. So that's your periods of this. Like, is that an echo of what we've just been talking about? Yeah. So these two sides don't like each other still, especially mm. at the top. They do not trust each other. They do not work well together. It, it'd be like trying to imagine Donald Trump going into coalition with Joe Biden. <laughs> right. to a certain yeah. extent the law of the land says that that has to happen but it mm-hmm. takes an awful lot for that to work so quite yeah. often there'll be something that comes that involves the Northern Ireland Assembly sorry not even the Assembly which is the where the, the, the representatives sit but the executive itself disbanding whenever that happens the British state has to come in and rule Northern Ireland by direct rule which isn't good okay so this is like Westminster taking a, a firm yeah. hand on the, the wheel and the going, Secretary hey. of State of Northern Ireland will effectively become the ruler of right. Northern Ireland. Um, okay. Still with the assembly coming in and all that stuff, but still it's not good. Um, so why, why would this happen? Like what would be the the type of um, kind of well, there's all uh, sorts friction of, like, that would lead to that? The one that led to the longest one that went on for ages was what was called the cash for ash scandal. Yes. Where there was this, um, like if it, this, this kind of stupid scandal could happen anywhere. It didn't have anything necessarily to do with Northern Irish politics, but it was mm-hmm. wrapped into Northern Irish politics. Um, DUP ministers were caught letting a really stupid policy go through that involved some kind of wood pellet burning system for home heating that yep. it, that whatever way they designed it there were state subsidy, subsidies that meant that if you burned more you would make money <laughs> <laughs> it basically incentivized Infinite you to just money burn machine. shit yes <laughs> and the state lost hundreds of millions of pounds and there were there were a couple of very bad decisions made by by DUP ministers so Sinn Féin took that as an excuse to go well, if we're going to keep this power sharing thing going, we're going to need a few concessions. So they wanted right. to get funding for the Irish language. 
in Northern Ireland, which is a big issue because yeah. um, Northern, a lot of Northern Unionists don't want to let that happen because they think that that's a, that's a whittling down of what they see as their country. Right. So it, that's when it came into things like, oh, they're like crocodiles. This is what the one of the Unionists said. If you give Sinn Féin a little bit, they'll bite your hand off. Um, and it like that led to a massive stalemate that went down for for nearly three years or about that anyway until eventually there was an election and they managed to come back to the to government mm-hmm. um, and they have since been able to keep it running okay but anything could happen to, to stop it again there could be yeah another a cash rash style style interruption sure um so it's it sounds like then this is a very stable setup that something like Brexit, uh, you know, a big political challenge, you know, it can it can stand up to that kind of <laughs> kind of big sweeping change. Um, jokes aside, how how has Brexit affected everything we've kind of been talking about here? Brexit hasn't affected it well at all. <laughs> so part of the Brexit saga is that the DUP supported Brexit. Mm. The Sinn Féin and Nationalist parties did not. And the majority of Northern Ireland did not vote for Brexit. Because it's part of the UK, it had to leave with the rest of it. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that a lot of the um, cross-border, um, like general life things that we have to have an open border between North and South, when they drew mm-hmm. up the Good Friday Agreement, were assumed privileges built into being in the EU. Right. So whenever you took Brexit out of that, you now have a harder border than that was going to be there before. We're, yeah, I'm not you're messing talk- with the foundations yeah. here of, of, of a, yeah. I'm not talking in terms of people because, because Ireland has such close links with the UK. Um, we don't, we have the right to live and work in each other's countries anyway, but outside of the EU. Prime, in, I'm a prime example of that. You're I, a prime example didn't of affect that, yeah. me, It didn't affect me at all. No. I still get to vote over here. But if you buy something in London and try to post it to your house in Kildare, that box does not have the same rights as you. It is an economic unit and it has to be treated differently. All right, here. Listen, okay. Thought exercise. I get in a big old box. I post myself back home to Mammy Nolan. Why would you make it more difficult than getting then? on a plane? Because <laughs> I'm trying to test the system here, Steve. We would have to value it, that box. You would have to have a customs declaration put onto it. And then your Mammy... So trying to value me. Value the you inside the box. Your Mammy would get a little piece of paper, which I have one here, actually. Sorry, one second. Yeah. Because... I bought something on Amazon without realizing it was going to come from the north. I get this little piece of paper sent to me by the Irish Postal Service to say mm-hmm. I have to pay them um, taxes and a fee for them to facilitate it. And then they'll post it to me. Based on the value of the content. Based on the value of the content. So granted, right. you will be Here, like... Hold on. Here, yeah, this is what I'm going to say. Bear in mind, this could have a knock-on effect on our friendship for years to come. I would also remind you we have matching tattoos. So like we, you and I are, are, are linked... I like a very, you know, basic primal level. <laughs> Answer me the question. How much do you think I'm worth? I'm About 350. About 350. Not 350. I didn't, I didn't like specify. Three. I just said 350. Depends on the day really, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think it's, I'm at, well, look, Mammy Nolan can afford that. So you better hope she remembers to pay it or else you'd be sitting in that <laughs> customs office for a long time. Oh, so, okay. As part of all the bullshit going on around Brexit, because they didn't have a plan for it before they did it, um, Mm. everyone was wondering, well, as part of this, we can't have a fucking border between North and South because that'll piss off a lot of people and jeopardize Brexit. Yeah. The compromise that they came up with was to effectively put the economic border between Ireland and the UK in the Irish Sea. Right. 
I think it's called the Northern Irish Protocol. Mm-hmm. If you are a Northern Protestant Unionist who has comes from 400 years of, of like plantation people, for lack of a better word, who have lived there for so long. <laughs> I don't think they like to be called plantation people. They don't like to be yeah. called plantation people, but that's, yeah, they, they have their roots there for a very long time and they see themselves as being a very different kind of person to someone as you and I. They won't yeah. be happy with having this, this, this new rigid thing in, in yeah. split between what they see as their country. Right. So that has caused a lot of trouble for parties like the DUP who can't accept something like that. So what, 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 like, can you give me an example of, of how that, that kind of conflict manifests like today? Like sure. Right well, uh, in protests, um, there were troubles in, uh, in cities in, 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 in Northern Ireland over the summer, there were mm-hmm. some rioting, a bus was burned out, and they kind of attributed that to to Brexit. It's kind of hard to attribute a mob to to like a specific political thing, but it has caused sure. an awful lot of trouble in the DUP, the, the the Unionist Party. Their their numbers, their poll numbers have gone way down. Um, mm-hmm. There's an even more radical Unionist Party that's that's grabbing at their heels. That does like no, 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 no consolidation, and then. It, it it actually led to their leader, Arlene Foster, effectively being turfed out and mm-hmm. being replaced first by this guy called Poots, who was there for a couple of months, but then he got fucked out and it was mm-hmm. replaced by Donaldson, who's there now. And his modus operandi is to change it. Because basically what happened was is that they got fucked over and... Um, is it not... Sorry, I can to say. Is it not Paul Given? Given? He's the first minister, but he's not the leader right. of the Democratic Unionist Party. There's right. a, okay. The problem sorry. is is that... He, uh, Donaldson was an MP but not an MLA he wasn't in Belfast he works in London so but right. he is leader of the DUP so he has to get back as soon as possible so whenever oh, okay, there's an election okay. he'll now stand for local rather than Westminster right. but okay, he is still yeah. the leader of the party okay um, he he has made it his his modus operandi to talk about Brexit to get rid of the protocol and he's tying his party's future to it the problem is is that Boris Johnson doesn't give a shit and tells everyone lies so he promised yeah. the unionists that we will never do anything like this and then when it came to doing a deal to get his Brexit, Brexit through he's like oh fuck it just put the border in the sea I don't care right so and, yeah and this is like this is a common thing would you say in in like uk politics that northern ireland kind of gets left behind a lot of the time that's not factored in as much as it probably should be i mean it being a prime example i don't even think it's necessarily fair to say the entire of northern ireland isn't factored in but i do think it's fair to say that unionists have a bit of a, a bit of a bone to pick when it terms to them getting fucked over by who they're yeah. supposed to consider their allies so mm-hmm. the, like in, at certain times yes Northern Ireland is a very small part of the United Kingdom. They would much rather concentrate on the rest of it to run it. And especially because it's so contentious, jumping in and making it a main part of Westminster politics isn't usually a good idea. But when the Mm -hmm. times they've had to do it, they, they have stepped in and they do usually tend to make, in the last couple of decades, they've made concessions on the side of the nationalists. Right. The unionists are seeing their, their power wane and wane and wane. That, that is partly because the, I guess the political, the general cultural zeitgeist of the world is kind of in favor of nationalism. We have Bill Clinton on our side. (laughs) Doing sax solos (laughs) solos. Joe Biden is very much pro-Ireland, pro-Southern Ireland. He's from Balanan Mayo. Of course he is. Um, yeah, and just yeah, it's it's much easier to support the underdog. And in that context, Ireland comes with the underdog. But then you're forgetting that the unionists feel like they're the underdogs in the context of Ireland. <laughs> it's just two underdogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, 
unionists have a legitimate claim to live mm. where they live the way they want to live. But equally, <laughs> Irish nationalists have a legitimate claim to want to be part of a united Ireland with the rest of their country. So you have these two rights yeah. standing up against each other. And that's the problem with politics is that it, like the only way to, to grind it out is to, is to just to feck and do the political thing. Not with guns yeah. though. Let's not do that again. Not with guns, never with guns. No, never. And so moving on to the future, like the idea of like, will the partition end? Will the North join with the South? I feel like these are things that constantly, constantly people are ta- talking about. Like, think, you know, a unified Ireland comes up every, uh, like all the time. And there's a couple of interesting things going on at the moment. So I'd say a couple of years ago, I would have said there's no real point in worrying too much about the unification of Ireland, North and South, because the parties that used to run the South of Ireland, as I said, they didn't really make the North part of their main political thing. When the troubles mm-hmm. came up, they did, because obviously you can't have violence on your island like that. But in terms yeah. of reunification, it was always like, oh, we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> Whereas right. what's happening at the moment is that because of other reasons, I would like to say not because of unification, Sinn Féin is, is more than likely going to be the largest party in Irish politics after the next Irish election. But then also because of how the Northern Irish politics is going in terms of the unionist split, there is a good chance that Sinn Féin could be the largest party in Northern Ireland politics after their next election. So you could have... So you think having Sinn Féin, North and South... Sinn Féin's modus it. operandi is to get a united Ireland. That is a hundred percent what they're about. Like they are a, a left-wing socialistic party that want to have all these other things, but their main goal is to unite Ireland. If they are in power in Dublin and they're in power in Belfast, we're going to have to, that, that like that will be the main question. Like, right. It'll have to be about it, unification. Yeah. Like they, there will be no way that they would let it be any other way. Could you estimate a timeline for that? I think within the next five years. Yeah. We could have a vote on unification within the next five years. It's actually, so it's built into the Good Friday Agreement. Um, A a vote on a a referendum on United Ireland is built into the Good Friday Agreement. It is at Mm. the discretion of the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland to decide that a majority of people in Northern Ireland want to have a vote and then they can call a vote. That's that's what's built into it. Okay. And do you think that that's where the public opinion will be? If well, by virtue of the fact, I guess if Sinn Fein are the the dominant power, oh, I don't know like, in terms of it passing. Yeah, I don't know. I I I would probably say it wouldn't pass at the moment. Yeah, in the north, it would probably pass in the south. Um, I don't like. I don't think. Yeah, man, I, th- I don't. I'm not looking forward to this. <laughs> it's going to be a bad. It's going to be. A, I, it's going to be Ireland's awful. version of Brexit. It's all we're going to talk about. There's not going yeah. to be any straight plans. It's going to be a mess. Yeah, it's going to dominate oh, politics. We're going to have to talk about that instead of so many other things. But look, a hundred years ago, all these fuckers left this, this steaming mess for us to pick up. Yeah. Like they kind of, they dodged the question back then by letting the island be partitioned. Yeah. And then it's taken a hundred years for it to happen now. <sighs> Jesus. Not looking forward to that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big, a big hovering question mark. Do you know how you'd vote? the future. Oh, Steve. So um, just to say, I think the most, like no one knows for sure how a vote would happen, but it's most yeah. likely that you'd have to have a vote on the same day in the North and the South. And here's a, yeah. an interesting question. What happens if the North votes, votes to join, but the South votes to not take them? <laughs> hey, I haven't used this phrase in many a year, but I think we would have in our hands 
a totes Aki Momo, <laughs> politically speaking. It's like they're standing outside on prom night with the, the limo. Oh, with the boombox? The limo and the, and the tux and they're like, come on, get into my car. And you're like, no, we're going with the jock. <laughs> <laughs> he turns up with a monster truck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? Like, I, I'm, I don't know if I would vote for Unified Ireland. I don't think I would. You're inclined towards not voting for United Ireland. Yeah. 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 Why? Have you got strong? I'd be inclined to vote want? for it. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, uh, many years of absorbing this political discourse is probably going to change my mind. Like, between now and when I have to vote. Yeah, I think it's the type of thing, like, right now on the spot, like, that. I'm, I'm just saying this based on, like, obviously if it came to a referendum where you had to make this decision, there would be a lot of uh, looking into, you know, the actual implications of it. Like, well, here's, how does it fa- here's the know, thing. All these other things. Here's the thing as well, actually. I read a really good report by British academics last year about how to, how to do it practically. And part mm. of that is that they said you should not work out the details before the vote. You should wait until after the vote and then work out the details. So just kind of base it on sentiment and no, 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 identity no. and no, not even sentiment. Well, yeah, I guess like like people will like obviously people will propose how they see it happening, but in terms of actually constitutionally legally putting the plan in place, they say you can only do that after a vote because if you try and talk to unionists before a vote, they're just going to ignore it. They won't give you their input. But if they're right. compelled to do so because they've lost the referendum, then you might get better input from them. And you might be able to design a system that they're more inclined to support after they've been forced to. Uh, yeah, I I, abs- I absolutely understand that argument that like the practicalities of it, because it sounds like a very pragmatic approach. I always, but Jesus, it's terrifying. It is. But I always told myself after watching what a fucking shit show Brexit was that I'd be like, if it came down to it, I would want to see option A and option B on the plate in front of us. Yes. Yeah. But they're saying that is not how it should be done. These academics are saying you need to, you, you will only truly be able to hash it out after you've decided which one you want to do. And maybe, oh, man. and they're saying you can't even have a vote on that vote. <laughs> you, the, oh God. Yeah. The, the, I, like I said, I get, I get functionally, but just like, what the fuck are you voting on then? It just comes down to like, like again, sentiment and feeling, voting with heart as opposed to voting with mind. Well, I mean, not necessarily because we do have the ability to rationalize and think about how we think it'll play out. But do you? Th- but like, there's just so much more like opportunity for false narratives and like all of the shit we've seen we've been seeing over like recent elections and stuff. This feels like it would be the most fertile ground for misinformation, I, right? Because yeah, it's the most you can't th- point. I, I don't you think you can't point to specific policy. You can't point to like, hey, look, this is what this this body is saying based on what's on the table this is what you know it's it's if it's much more open i understand that it's like yeah yeah i appreciate that but i don't think there would be a difference even if you had concrete plans put on the table i still think different sides would like would twist it anyway yeah misinformation will always i think so yeah yeah. but i do i do appreciate what you're talking about and i do i don't like the idea of it being emotive and sentimental more than actual practical because we're not going to know the practical plan but i do think like it is a sentimental question. It's like, what do you need to feel complete as an Irish I mean, person? It is. Yeah, it's it's so it's so so much of it comes down to identity. Oh boy, yeah. Oh, tough one, tough one, tough one, tough one. You were frozen um, there for a while, like this. Look, like with a finger in your <laughs> chew, chewing your finger. <laughs> look, I think Zoom just realized how I was feeling and decided to freeze on, on the most appropriate emotion. 
yeah, look. I apologise to any tell. unionists um, listeners, uh, Northern Irish or British listeners that wanted to hear more about um, general Northern Ireland unionist thinking and the, or other practical details about it. Mostly yeah. what we talked about was the constitutional question and the idea of how the North sits in terms of being South, North, East, West. But yeah, that's the, sorry guys, that's your biggest deal. <laughs> it is. And it's also like, you have to bear in mind, we're like a splainery podcast and this is the primary yes. bit of context yep. you need before you can have any other discussion. This is the, this is the, this is, I think the main conversation point, especially when we've listeners all over the world. Um, this is the first thing you talk about. Um, beautiful part of the country. It is. I was up there on holidays. A couple it is weeks worth ago. saying. Yeah, I went to I went like, to a town called Port Rush, which is up the very top near the Giants Causeway. Very nice mm. part of the world. Although I did catch a virus, yeah. bastards. Ah, look, that's not their fault, or is it? Who's <laughs> to say? That will factor in in the referendum. I'm sure the misinformation starts here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm glad we put that at the end. Yes. <laughs> look. Uh, yeah. This is this is a, this is a long enough one, but sure. Look, we've been gone for a while. Speaking of here, the end, though, have it. Speaking of the end, look, Steve and I, how oh, how are we gonna say this? It's hard. Look, it's not we've it's been not going, you. It's us. It's, it's, it's not you, it's us. Look, open and honest. This podcast has been going for almost five years now. Didn't we hit five years? No, it was four years, was it? Yeah, four years. Okay. So we're coming up to five years. 135 episodes, handful of live shows, some matching tattoos thrown in there. Live, Some lovely pints had along shows. the way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Many ridiculous over the top audio situations. Yeah, it's all there and it'll, it'll exist there forever. But look, I like all good things it must come to an end. And Steve and I have been having some chats behind the scenes. And what we don't want, what we always, what we never wanted was for this to, we didn't want to do this if it didn't feel right. And I think Steve and I have reached a point where like we're approaching a natural yeah. end, I think. I think you explained it well in that to to turn it into something else would be disingenuous. Right. The idea of the show started off as like, we go back to that inception. It's like, oh, I was drunk and scared in America. I didn't know what was going on. And I was in an Uber and I sent a panicked message to my friend Steve asking me to help me understand this stuff. And... You, you, you were a good man. You took me, you took this toddler by the hand and took him through all the things he needed to know. And we've con- kind of gotten to a point now where I feel like I'm no longer that toddler. No. I feel like I'm well equipped enough that like I can have these conversations. I would no longer be scared in the back of that Uber talking to that guy who now in hindsight, I think was racist. <laughs> look, it's taken 135 episodes to realize, but, uh, I think I, I would be okay having those like pretty politically charged conversations. And I have been, um, and it's been great. Um, but I think there's like a duality there where, you and I have grown, this podcast has grown and like the world around us has grown to the point where, you know, I think our contribution to all of this stuff we've, we've done, we've made it or, you know, we've made, we've made, we've said what we've wanted to say. Uh, it's not to say I've learned everything got to do with politics. I'm going <laughs> to like, that's it. I think I've now got absorbed all of the knowledge, but the idea was always just like, give me the foundation so that I can make sense of this stuff. And Steve's done that to continue on in this like splainery, silly idiot's guide kind of was starting to feel a bit disingenuous. 
and we don't want to be just a, another we don't want to lose the thing that like made it special yeah. for us i think and there's plenty of other great podcasts out there that you know have their own spin on things but i think we're reaching the point the natural end point of ours and we wanted we wanted to end while it was still fun right yeah. we wanted to end while it was still like good banter um while we enjoyed making it while hopefully you enjoyed listening it, and we just didn't want it to peter out into a little wet fart of an ending no want to go out with a big nice drive exactly this is going to be a big cheek clapper going on <laughs> yeah oh is that applause for the end of the, my favorite podcast no it's just it's just two big old sheeps clapping together so look guys um, we probably have about six episodes left and um, we're, we're we're probably going to end around the time we started end of the year yeah. start of the new year um, take it up to about five years there. take it up to five years so we have a couple of ideas on what we want to do that's a lie but we'll uh-huh. think of some <laughs> I don't want to be disingenuous <laughs> yeah um, that's part no, of no we've some I've some you have some but yeah we yeah. would we would love to hear from you what do you guys well, want to yeah, hear yeah what about? what are the last things and if you say things that we can't explain we'll tell you no <laughs> <laughs> but if there are a couple of t- big broad topics that you want us to handle on the last six episodes if there's any guests that you think we could talk to about a particularly amazing topic that we can actually talk to so that's not you know don't ask us to talk to angela merkel on her retirement or something like that sure because you know if there's any old old guests you want to see come back yeah we can look into that if they'll still have us if we haven't burnt those bridges i mean there's only Uh, that you know the one person jesus (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's the least forgiving of all of them (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah let's reach out to us uh, email mm-hmm. on politics at gmail.com Instagram on politics on Twitter and Instagram all those things uh, the feed won't go anywhere like these episodes will always exist if you ever you know wanted to listen or go back or whatever I don't know if that's true like, but uh, you know what I'm not in, I don't deal in truth alright <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell you the truth at the end if I've learned that in over 135 episodes uh truth is a subjective thing no um i'm pretty sure we'll figure it out they'll put we'll put at least we'll put up a drop if you really want to keep listening to us get in contact we will send you vinyl recordings (laughs) of each episode and send them to your house yeah that's perfectly cost it's the most costly those are the that's how our grandparents podcasted we did inherit this from our grandparents we did this and this is how they did it God, they're going to they're oh, they're they're going to roll over in their grave when they hear we're finally ending. I'm planning <laughs> to put a turbine on part on top of the grave so we can generate renewable <laughs> energy and continue forever. Amazing, um, but yeah, that's it. Again, not over yet. We've got a few more episodes in us. Take us up to the end of the year. We're still going to be here. But look, we love yous. Come here. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's really inappropriate. Um, no we do we, we, we love you thank you for listening sorry about the break we needed it I think um, and I think our, our final episodes will be all the better for it uh, and now Steve you want to say bye <laughs> bye for now bye for now and then and then bye forever but for now do you think we're really bad at ending episodes because it's like Irish people can't hang up on phones that's I think we talked about it before the way we kind of shite on is the is the podcast equivalent of when you're talking to your ma and it's like alright goodbye 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 good luck good luck goodbye Ash you're gone goodbye that kind of thing just stop. that's what we stop do it now. let's just stop just like or you know what we could do we could just fade it out so it's just you and I talking and then it's like fading out now which we've never done before we've never done a fade out but like right now our voices are fading out 
which is crazy. It's like the end of a Bon Jovi song. You know, you listen to Living on a Prayer and there's no like, Living on a Prayer, and it just ends. No, it's just like Bon Jovi just singing. And so that way you can continue singing for eternity. You have to keep this up for seven minutes. Well, that's it. It's a seven minute beta. <laughs> never, never been done before. You're not going never deaf. This is a seven minute no. thing. This is a seven minute long fade out because our voices are getting clogged a bit. You might not even hear it. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Spice Bags is a podcast about food in Ireland from an international perspective. Hi, I'm May. I'm an American food writer, and I'm with my friends Blanca, a chef from Spain, and Dee, an Irish food editrix. And we are the Spice Bags, three sassy ladies with a lot to dish up. Join us for the chats. Hello. 